Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 1, Part 1, Chapters 15 through 25. In the 19th century Russian hierarchy system, the rich are represented by two separate groups, old money and new. There's one person who doesn't give a shit about whose side you're on. For her, if there's a will, there's a way. Her name? Princess Anna Nikolovna Drubetskoy. This is her story. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, the podcast that's currently taking you chapter by chapter through Tolstoy's War and Peace. This is our second episode, and today we're going to conclude Volume 1, Part 1, Chapters 15 through 25. A few notes on the last episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did not remember meeting all of these major characters all at once so quickly. I feel that Tolstoy really does introduce them and expects us to remember them, but luckily that's why I'm taking all these detailed notes so you won't really have to struggle with remembering who's who and these minor characters that pop up a little bit later. A few things (laughs) definitely took me by surprise when listening back to my own voice. Um, I have a few apologies. First off, uh, I butchered uh, Anna Mikhailovna's Drubayetskoy's name. I'm gonna try and say it the same way every time. I have it written down and bolded in my notes. I do apologize. She is a queen, and fortunately for us, this is her star turn in the novel. She is going to pull some law and order shits and basically make sure that she comes out on top in the situation. It's a really funny moment that uh, we did not expect, or I did not expect from this lower class, almost faded grand dam of Russian culture. Also, something that bothered me was I called Helene on her introduction, Anatole's brother. I do apologize. She is Anatole's sister. As we know, Anatole's brother is Ippolit the Idiot. Oh, wait, of course, drink and read before we get started. What am I drinking? I am drinking my go-to drink of choice. It is none other than a Manhattan, so I've got my bourbon, my vermouth, my simple syrup, and a little bit of lime, because I'm fancy like that. And it is 1 p.m. on a Monday. (laughs) What am I doing with my life? But let's not worry about my life. Let's worry about the lives of these Russian citizens during War and Peace. Beginning with chapter 15. Instantly, the sound alarm, the buzzer's going off. Wee wee, we have a queen alert because Count Rostov asked the audience, ask uh, the people at his estate because the name day ceremony is still going on. Is she here? Who is she, you may be asking. Uh, another badass woman is about to enter the scene. This is Maria Dmitrievna Akrosimova, and we'll refer to her as Maria for short, or Maria Dmitrievna. Uh, she is the Queen of Shade. She is a Moscow Grand Dame. She basically flaunts herself from party to party, throws shade, reads a few people, sips a few drinks, and then goes out in style. Everyone respects her, but everyone also fears her and is highly intimidated by her sway because she is a Grand Dame. She's been around the block a couple times, and this isn't her first rodeo. She is there to make or break you in this society. While this is going on, and Rostov is kind of preparing for Maria to arrive, we do meet two cousins of uh, the Countess Rostov, uh, Shin Shin, who's a witty old 
old man. Um, he, he's snarky with his words, and he's kind of a fun character based on the name Shinshin. You would recognize that, who is having a conversation, a very pointed conversation, with another one of the cousins, Berg, who is a colonel currently fighting in the war. And this is Vera's fiance. Um, you remember Vera. She's the one of the elder Rostov daughters who no one wanted to hang around last chapter. She doesn't change anytime. Either she's engaged to him or she has feelings for him. And there's a lot of uh, talk about cousins intermingling coming up too that we'll try and get into a little bit more specifics on. While they're arguing about the war, um, every old person is playing Boston, which is a card game, a French card game. So there is more of that reference to French culture and how if you're playing a French game and speaking French, even though the French are slowly taking over, um, it's a bit higher class than not speaking French at all. Um, they are fighting Shinshin and Berg are fighting, well, not fighting, Shinshin is essentially laughing at Berg because Berg is taking his job far too seriously. He could say that he is making 30 rubles more as opposed to working in the cavalry as a guardman. Shinshin realizes that none of this actually matters at all, and everyone there is slightly laughing at Berg, and Berg is too clueless to realize that the room is laughing at him. Read the room, Berg. As Berg and Shinshin are fighting, the rest of the adult males in the room are discussing some prevalent issue. Apparently, Russia has written a manifesto going against Napoleon. Napoleon, during this entire opening section of the novel, has been slowly conquering other European nations, and Russia has finally decided to declare war on Napoleon. So we are almost to our war section. War is imminent, and this is essentially the last free moments we'll see from some of these characters before the war affects them in some way, shape, or form. Our boy, of course, Pierre Bezukov, arrives once more in his usual oddness, extremely socially awkward and introverted. Something I find interesting about, about Pierre is I think a lot of us can relate to him because he arrives at a party where he feels like he doesn't belong, and to feel like the outsider is totally commonplace, especially among me when I'm making a literary podcast analyzing War and Peace. I... I... I feel like an introverted extrovert at times, and Pierre, his intentions are well-intended, but it's in the execution that he fails. He doesn't really know how to speak to other people, react, and what's expected of him in this higher society. Not to be outdone, enter Maria Dmitrievna. She shows up, she's got gifts for Natasha, the kids, and she immediately, after, you know, uh, Natasha is her goddaughter, so she, she thanks her first and uh, greets her. She sees Pierre and reads him to filth. She goes, I heard about your little bear incidents with those boys, and you should be ashamed of yourself because you're acting like a complete playboy, party animal, when your father is on his deathbed. He's going to die any second now, and here you are having a party. But enough of that. Where's the food? And walks out. Of course, Pierre is silently sitting and stewing after he's been read the house down boots, mama. <laughs> It, it just cracks me up that Maria could deliver that line and then immediately, like, ask, when's dinner? Speaking of, they do start to eat at this point. There's a lot of food mentioned. Um, they're preparing a banquet for Natasha's name day. 
Um, Sonia is very upset because Nikolai is sitting with Julie Karagin, who uh, mentioned last episode. I did mention that she is not related to Anatole, Helene, um, Vasily, and Ippolit Karagin. She just shares a very similar last name. This is completely different Karagin. And Julie's got the hots for Nikolai, who is Natasha's older brother, currently... The watermelon of Sonia's heart, and I'm scraping the bottle of the barrel, <laughs> the bottom of the barrel for that reference. On to chapter 16. So at dinner, as one does, Shinshin and a random German colonel have different views on the war. Um, Shinshin is of the side that they should stay out of it, as Russia in general should not get involved in it, and the German takes the opposite stance with, "No, we're going to kick Napoleon's ass." Something they do with this German in this translation is they give him a very Doctor Strangelove type of affectation that he's speaking with. So he's, we essentially must fight for blood. And he's speaking in very heavy dialect-based German. People are talking about things that are completely beyond their understanding. They're talking about war as if it's something fun to do in the off time between seasons of shows. But they do not realize that war is hell and it's coming for them slowly, but it's coming. Nikolai is then asked his opinion, um, and despite being a teenager, I want to say he's slightly older than Natasha, who is 13, so maybe he's around 16, 17 years old. He stands up at the dinner table and shouts like, Viva Russia! Uh, <laughs> we Russians must either die or, or conquer the worlds. That's all we're made for. And everyone there, including Julie. Julie's like, what beautiful words. Sonia's sitting on his other shoulder, bawling her eyes out. Because clearly, this is the man she loves. But he is not going to return the feelings. And all the old people, including Pierre, give him little golf claps and say, Spoken like a true Cossack son. And they're all raucously banging the table to which Mario Dmitrievna, uh, across the table, turns and looks at them and asks the immortal question, who the hell is banging on the table down there? And <laughs> they immediately stop. And while this little encounter, the scenes going on between the gentleman and Maria Dmitrievna, Natasha is being dared by the younger Rostovs uh, to scream aloud a question at Maria Dmitrievna, to which, showing a lot of courage for her young self, she stands up and immediately screams at Maria Dmitrievna, what's for dessert, old lady? And the room freezes, everyone is biting their tongues because this is an act of absolute defiance. No one screams at Maria Dmitrievna and lives to tell the tale. But after a second, Maria Dmitrievna simply calls Natalia a Cossack in a very charming, uh, sweet way because she's the only one that's allowed to stand up to her and she's just so darn cute. So she, she's going to get a free pass on this one. But it is evident that if Pierre can, you know, be a playboy and then show up to a party and sit there in silence and still get read by the room, Natasha and him are from completely different worlds and Natasha is going to get off scot-free because that's just the type of person she is. She's that innocence embodied that everyone seems to love. Chapter 17. All the old people and the young people separate into two different groups. After dinner, the old people begin playing Boston and the young people sit around the piano singing 
uh, uh, tunes. It is specifically mentioned that Natasha has an excellent voice and she's in vocal training. This is something that will show up a little bit, a wee bit later in the novel as well, that she has an excellent singing voice. Uh, and Sonia isn't there. Forget about Andre not being there. Sonia isn't there. Worried about her friend, her cousin, Natasha goes to investigate to see where Sonia is. And Sonia is crying alone on, like, in a corridor on the chest. The, what, one of the best lines we've read so far. This chest was the Rostov's problem, uh, Rostov woman's uh, problem area. It's where they go to go and cry. And everyone in the estate knows that. So that that cracked me up a little bit. That she's just sitting here crying, and she's crying, of course, because Nikolai isn't going to return uh, the feelings for her that he's evidently showing for Julie Karagin. She's also very upset because he is going off to war, and she's worried about his life. And we get a little bit of Sonia backstory. So Sonia is an adoptive daughter to the Rostovs, but she is treated like a member of the family, and no one seems to hold that against her. She is worried, though, because Nikolai and her are first cousins, and in order for first cousins to marry in this society, they need special permission from the Orthodox Church, which is hard to come by. And she is also concerned that Countess Rostov will not allow this marriage to happen. And Vera, ever, ever the eternal bitch Vera, she has stolen some love letters slash sonnets that uh, Nikolai and and Sonia have written to each other, and she intends them to read them aloud to Countess Rostov, which would be devastating for young Sonia. So she is she is bawling her eyes out. But Natasha consoles her and says, "We'll work through this." And I don't think that it's going to happen exactly like the way you're, um, you know, you're, you're maximizing the the scenario, you're turning this uh, molehill into a mountain. But uh, I'll be there for you no matter what because I'm your friend, and this is genuine friendship. Between Natasha and Sonia, I'm grateful for it. You know, you always got to have your, your best Judy that you cry, uh, that can talk you down. <laughs> and it's cute. It's cute. They all go off to sing, and uh, Natasha, to cheer Sonia up further, mentions that from that uh, the evening's dinner when she was sitting across from Pierre, Pierre honestly made her laugh more than she's laughed in a long time. And this is a relationship, Pierre and Natasha, that we're going to need to pay attention to. It's the main relationship. I realize that there is a vast age difference now, but it's not treated as a creepy thing at this point. It's treated, or uh, I shouldn't say creepy, I should say an out-of-place relationship at this point. It's more like, oh, that funny man. He's very entertaining, and he makes me happy. And it's played for more cuteness. And Natasha is asked to dance with Pierre, who's sitting there awkwardly at the table, a real wallflower, as expected. And she jumps up at the chance to do this because it will make her seem more mature, and it is her name day after all. So she gets up, she, I imagine, is at least a few heads shorter than Pierre, and asks him for a dance, to which he agrees, but nervously looks around the room and sees that the entire um, place is laughing at him. But not in a, a mean laughter, but in an, oh boy, Pierre, really, dancing with that 13-year-old I expected of him. But... It, it's just, he feels awkward about it. But Natasha suggests that, no, this isn't something to be awkward to it. And why should I feel bad about dancing with Pierre? He's one of my friends. Uh, during the Echo Says, uh, one of the dances, oh, here's the moment to end the chapters. This is a joyous, bright moment. Maria Dmitrievna and Count Rostov dance the Daniel Cooper, which is a very quick dance. And essentially, Turn Down For What is playing in the background of this moment. They hit the dance floor and they are doing flips. They're doing spread eagles, back flips, flip flops, one right after the other. 
And they are cutting a rug on this dance floor to which the entire room is full of joy, saying, I never would have expected these two old fogies to be dancing this very quick dance together and having fun despite them being winded and old and their backs is aching and they're they're missing a few steps, but they're having a good time nonetheless. And this is a... A, a very joyous moment. It reminds me of the the Bondichuk film, the the Criterion Collection, Sergei Bondichuk adaptation of War and Peace, and it's very frantic. There's cuts everywhere, but the room is bright and people are laughing, almost to hysteria, and it's uplifting. And it's timely that we get this uplifting moment to mirror the fall that's about to happen. But don't worry, Anna Mikhailovna's gonna get what she want. Just when Count Rostov and Maria Dmitrievna are in the middle of their third encore of the hustle, the news drops that Pierre's father, Count Bezukhov, has had his sixth stroke. And he was only one away from a free coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. He could have just lasted a little bit longer. <laughs> So we flash sideways to the Count Bezukhov estate and everyone is there, all the family members. He's got like a, a, a wardrobe full of priests and they're all debating about giving him last unction or final rites, extreme unction or final rites. And this is essentially means you're going to die now. You're getting your last confession so you can go straight to heaven. Vasily, of course, is there being the snake as he always is, Vasily Karagin. And he is undoubtedly making sure that he is in good favor with whoever gets all of this vast fortune, whatever way the wind blows. The mourners point out that the Count is only 60 years old. And that's crazy how the life expectancy was way different back then. Vasily sneaks his way into a room where the Count's niece, Catherine, nicknamed Katsuke, is there crying. And she's only wishing in this moment that her uncle has a very peaceful death. She's been through a lot, and I, I feel a little bit bad for her because she appears to have been at his bedside for a very long time, um, and she does not make out so hot uh, following the events of this scene. And Vasily immediately questions her, where is the Count's will? Because if we're not in it, you and your sisters and me get bubkiss from this. So we need to make sure that we are in good standing and I would feel better if I knew where the will was. Of course, Catherine is like, my uncle is dying, dude. I can't really talk about right that right now. I'm grieving. But then Vasily wins her over by saying that it wouldn't be unlike the Count to give Pierre everything that he's garnered over the years because Pierre is his favorite, even though he is a bastard son. Catherine shoots this down by saying, in the time period, it was illegal to give a bastard son any inheritance. But Vasily replies back that he heard that the Count actually wrote a letter to the Emperor himself in order to get Pierre unbastardized, which I didn't even know could happen in history. And that's kind of a baller move that the Emperor has the power to unbastardize you. The hamster on the wheel is turning in Catherine's head and she realizes, mon dieu, he did write a letter that I suspect was going to the emperor and received it. And along with his will, we stuck all of the information that we had in a folder under his pillow on his deathbed. So the information is currently sitting under the Count's head as he lies dying. It's free free pass for anyone who could get these letters. And Vasily and Catherine say we have to get there first in order to burn them. Because if the letters are burned, then no one's gonna believe this story and we stand to inherit a fortune. So they strike a bargain. 
in this whole moment, it's like, bum, bum, bum. Everyone's nervous. And Catherine is, freak out, freak out, freak out. Gotta find the will. Get down, get down, get down. Gotta burn those letters. And she realizes that the one that planted this idea in her head is none other than Mama Drobetskoy, Anna Mikhailovna herself, who is currently en route to this estate with Pierre in the carriage. So we're getting all of these characters, high drama, high intrigue, Oh, I just live for moments like this in War and Peace. It also reminds me of that one Jimmy Neutron episode where... I, I forget the, the details, but there's the whole, I have the ring, I have the ring right here, but you put the, the will in place of the ring there. And um, there is some very obvious anger between Catherine and Anna Mikhailovna. She shuts her down. She says, that woman isn't worthy enough to lick my feet or be my maid. She must be stopped at all costs. So chapter 10, speak of the devil who's en route to this, but none other than the badass herself, Anna Mikhailovna, Princess Drobetskoy, and Pierre in tow. She realizes that she has to get Pierre there because he's been called to the deathbed of his father and she needs to make a final impression. It's the bachelor, the final rose situation once more. It's her last shot. She's got to get there and she's got to take action. They First off, Pierre is like in a stupor because his father is dying throughout the whole chapter. He's being ushered by... Anna Mikhailovna all over his own house, um, but they don't enter through the front door. They sneak in through the back like they are going to... They're, they're it's Catherine Zeta-Jones in entrapment with the laser beams. She's climbing up the wall like Spider-Man with Pierre in tow in order to get what she wants. Pierre is following along and realizing that despite living in this house for the majority of his life, he doesn't recognize any of these rooms or secret passages, but Anna Mikhailovna knows exactly where to go. The servants are letting her go, almost like she bribed them beforehand. She's got this plan down to a T, and then when she arrives to greet the mourners, she turns on the waterworks immediately and is like, I brought the Count his favorite son, please let us through! And she also reminds Pierre that I'm doing doing this for you, and if it so happens that you get a buttload of money from this, remember me. Remember the one who made you first. <laughs> As they're making their way to Count Bezikov's bedside, they do pass Vasily and Catherine, uh, Catherine basically bitch-talking them, and... Just as they're about to overhear them whispering, Catherine gets up and slams the door in Team Pierre's face, which is so unlike her. And Anna ditches Pierre to kind of, you know, mingle with the mourners before going to his father. And she runs into Count Bezikov's bedchamber just in tears, so no one can really stop her because she's apparently really grieving. But we know she's there to scope out where the letters and the will are in order to get her hands on it when this all dies down in a few seconds. And Pierre is having a very weird experience because he's been treated as a bastard son his whole life. He just had that bear baiting incident where no one would talk to him, everyone was throwing shade at him, and now everyone is kissing his royal ass, almost like he's about to inherit a vast fortune, and he doesn't know how to react to this. He is just stunned that people are acknowledging him and treating him like a person for the first time in his life. Of course, Vasily snakes in again, and he greets Pierre on the deathbed of his father with a handshake. Pierre is immediately suspicious of this because they never shake hands. And it's extremely awkward to be like, congratulations, your father's about to die. Here's a handshake. Um, but Vasily is doing this in order to maintain in good favor if Pierre does 
succeed in his endeavor and inherit everything. Extremely awkward, the old man is dying in the next room over, and Anna Mikhailovna comes out weeping and says Pierre is needed on his bedside, the Count's bedside, we need to go in and say goodbye to your dad. Pierre leads all of these mourners in, and initially he was he would have been refused entry to that door under any under circumstance, but these higher-ups seem to realize that Pierre is no longer a bastard son to the Count, and it's time to make up for lost time. So chapter 20, very somber chapter, Pierre and Drubetskoy enter Count Bezukhov's death chamber. And when we think death, we think a lot of blacks and grays, but in this Russian ceremony, it's like a room full of gold. There's incense, there's candles, there's framed pictures of icons and saints, but it is a very somber chapter. Um, I recall the imagery from the Sergei Bondichok film, uh, where I wasn't expecting it to be as brightly lit um, of course, we get, like, the chorus singers as they're trying to usher Count Bezikov into the next life, but oh, it's very sad. And even with this somberness pervading the room, Anna Mikhailovna and Vasily are about to put on a petty, petty show. Anna Mikhailovna picks up a candle and essentially walks dramatically across the room, puts it in Pierre's hand, and without words says to him, light it for your father. And then not to be outdone, Vasily and Catherine dramatically leave the room into the next chamber to prepare like the funeral bed. Uh, so they're trying to one-up each other with these petty mourning uh, traditions and it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But it's also a bit of that dark humor in death that I think is mirrored very well. Pierre is silently contemplating throughout this whole scene, and it's it's a little bit touching because you can see that he clearly loves his father despite being a bastard son. Um, he does compare his visage to, like, a lion in his prime that's on its deathbed, and there's that rea regality of appearing as a lion, but at the same time, his strength is gone, he's almost a bloated corpse now, and it's not the same feeling. It almost feels like it isn't the same person that I've known all my life, but he is still there, so I have to honor him. In order to accomplish last rites, they have to move Count Bezukov from his armchair in this room to the bed that's being prepared in the next room, and... It's a very small scene, but Pierre, he's speechless and he's just, his mind is worrying about how this, this man that he regarded in his life, that took care of him, that gave him everything he needed in this, has completely lost all ability to speak, all ability to move, and he, while still handsome in death, he is just like a lifeless ragdoll, and it... It's extremely beautifully written. Pierre is going through the motions and completely out of it. And while we did see Anna Mikhailovna kind of make a grab for that money in the previous chapter, and she will continue to do so after this ceremony is over, um, she does seem a little bit like she is there for Pierre and the only one to guide him. So she ushers him into the room where the Count is now in bed after the rites are performed. And... Pierre is unaware of how to act in this situation. It's the first major person that he's lost in his life, the first time he's experienced death this close to home. And she does gesture to him to kiss his hand, and Pierre goes to do so, but he sees that this hand isn't the same hand that he knew in life. It is a dead, lifeless shell of a hand. His father doesn't recognize that he's sitting there. He's looking somewhere else, somewhere off in the distance. Um, at one point... He does make a croaking sound to which it's interpreted, I want to turn and face the wall. This is very um, the death of Ivan Ilyich, which has a, a character taking a fall and then experiencing death surrounded by his family and soul searching. Uh, very, 
Tolstoy does wonders when it comes to death and religion and accepting death and moving on because it feels so lifelike. It it feels like if you've ever been on someone's deathbed, and I, I hope that's not the case for most of us, but it is something we all will have to go through at some point in our life. He does a wonderful job of breaching the topic and discussing it in a way that feels human. Um, it's very beautiful writing. And once the count is turned, he notices Pierre is looking at him in disgust at his arm and he breaks into a little tiny smile. And this, this breaks Pierre, this breaks the Pierre. <laughs> and he's extremely sad about losing his father. After a few more moments, he does, appear as if he's sleeping, but Anna Mikhailovna says he is sleeping to signify that he is dead. Let's leave, and they all leave the room. Chapter 21, to pull an Yzma, well, he ain't getting any deader, so you know what that means. Anna Mikhailovna, Catherine, and Vasily are gonna, about to go round two. Pierre is offered some tea from Anna Mikhailovna, and in this little kind of adjoining room, he's starting, and we'll see Pierre do this many times throughout the novel, he's starting to appreciate the very minuscule details of his life that he's taken for granted. So he's holding a fine china cup and notices how delicate it is. He remembers the memories of not dancing in this room along with the others because he considers himself a bad dancer and how, if he would have taken the chance with that, maybe some things would be different now. And this is a very humanistic feeling yet again. Tolstoy is perfect at writing these human emotions. While Pierre is drinking this tea, of course, Drobyetskoy has snuck out to overhear a conversation between Vasily and Catherine about the will, and Pierre eventually catches on that Catherine is holding a folder that probably has the will and the letters in it, and they basically need to get that. And in order to get that, the gentlemen, of course, take to the sidelines and don't do anything during this scene, while Drobyetskoy... Drobyetskoy and Catherine have a sort of petty kindness off with, No, my dear, I insist. He just died. Let me take these papers from you so you can grieve. No, I'm fine, you old witch. I can take the papers just fine for myself. And they are tugging back and forth, not trying to make a scene, but at the same time making every scene while these gentlemen watch these two women fight it out. So they're passively, aggressively tugging these papers back and forth, and Catherine utters, like, how dare you, cousin, make a scene at his funeral? The body isn't even cold yet and already. And Anna Mikhailovna turns to Pierre and goes, I'm not making any scene. What do you think we should do, Pierre? Because technically, if you make the right decision, we'll be in power. Vasily is there is like, yes, Pierre, give us your opinion because it's going to factor into what's going to happen here. And just as Pierre is about to speak, Catherine breaks the fuck down. She starts crying. She starts screaming. She yells, loathsome woman at Anna Mikhailovna. And Prince Vasily essentially says, all right, that house of cards has folded. But I'm going to watch this cat fight anyway. The two fight it out, and Catherine drops the papers, to which Drobetskoy picks them up. They find out that the Count has officially died. They run back into the room, leaving Pierre alone to stew. And when they get back, it turns out that Pierre has all the money. He has gotten everything from Count Bezukhov, left every single ruple, all the estates, all the fortune is now his. The next morning, Anna Mikhailovna sends Pierre a letter that's essentially like, Remember the favors I did for you? If my son Boris or I happen to meet a hard time in life, uh, a gracious handout will be appreciated. Thanks, love you, bye, signed Anna Mikhailovna Drobyetskoy. Kiss, and she has succeeded in what she set out to do. Anna Mikhailovna also further states that the Count loved Boris and 
would always provide for him. So if something does happen to him or me, please take care of him. Your father wished it so. And there's nothing Pierre can say about that. And then to disappear for a while, Anna Mikhailovna proceeds to go around Moscow and telling everybody in the town who would listen how she took it upon herself to bring Pierre to his father's deathbed and how touching it was and emotional and how much they all cried and how he is no longer a bastard son, but one of the richest people in the city. And the Oscar goes to Anna Mikhailovna Drobetskoy. So chapter 22, we're going to go from all this Bezukhov-Rostov drama, and we're going to meet our last set of peace characters, this this last family. So, so far we have the Karagans, we have the Rostovs, and now we're going to get an in-depth look at the Bolkonsky household. And they are living out in the country um, at an estate called Bald Hills, and Prince uh, Bolkonsky is a very old, crotchety man who's very set in his ways. I like to compare him to, if you've ever seen The Sound of Music, think of Captain Von Trapp, but without that underlying kindness that Maria like awakens in him, he's extremely stern and he's a kooky old man. And we're going to see that he is not the best dad, especially to Andre's sister, Mary. Mary is an example of the classic poor little rich girl archetype that we see, except spice it up with a little bit more religion. Um, she lives in this huge house with her father, Prince Bolkonsky, and his... Well, he's kind of making goo-goo eyes at her, but she's supposed to be Mary's companion. She is a French lady by the name of Mademoiselle Boiren, and it is an extremely awkward household to live in, I imagine. So Prince Bolkonsky has been excommunicated by essentially the Russian government and asked to live in a state in the country. He's very down with this. He's not a people person, and he does not interact well with people, as we will see, is one of his current character traits. Another one of his zany character traits is he has a new hobby every day that he sticks to at a very precise schedule. So for example, um, he'll be working at his lathe woodworking, and he'll work from that for like an hour, and then he'll go on and jog for an hour, and when he takes his naps from three to four, every afternoon there is nothing in the world that can deter him from this schedule mary is plain she's not that attractive she doesn't have much going for her she's not really left this house her entire life her father has made sure that she is homeschooled he teaches her specific things and mademoiselle Borin teaches her specific things but she has not had much interaction with the outside world she is that aerial trope that longs for something more um, and she has discovered religion, though. She is one of the most devout characters in the novel. Her father does not make her education a joy. He berates her for everything. He barely glances up from his activity whenever he's teaching her. Um, and if she does not do something right the first time, he yells at her. And being a very nervous person myself, if this was the education system that I was accustomed to, I would not be a good learner. And she's very inclusive. Poor little Mary. She's got a sad little life right now, but it does get better for her. I think she goes on a, a mini journey. As Mary is standing in the study at her appointed geometry hour, and her father berates her for being an idiot and not sitting down quick enough, he does reveal that she has gotten a letter from her pen pal, who turns out to be Julie Karagin. You remember the one that Nikolai Rostov was making goo-goo eyes at and upset Sonia so much. Uh, they turn out that they are great friends and they write to each other often. And she is um, Mary's window into what's happening into high society at the time. 
Prince Polkonski even denies her such pleasures as simple letters and a book on religious mysticism that she is not allowed to see. Um, he controls her very much helicopter parent 101, Polkonski practices. Um, but he does give her one letter, which she is excited for. And that day, um, Andre and Lisa are supposed to show up because Andre is going to be called to war. So they're going to say their goodbyes and Lisa is going to go live with the Bolkonskis in her present uh, pregnancy. So after her father just says to her, Mary, I don't want you to wind up an idiot like other women. Okay, bye. Go to your room and read your letter. She does so. She's constantly nervously praying to herself, which is something that I practice as a faded Catholic. Um, so I can relate to Mary. But she does go to her room and reads Julie's letters, wherein we are given events that we've already heard about from Julie's perspective. So A, they start with girl talk. She's like, ooh, Mary, am I crushing on Nikolai Rostov? He thinks he's into Sonia, but boy, he hasn't met me yet. Mm-hmm. Next, she explains that Pierre is the new Count Bezikov. He's extremely rich and wealthy, and that Prince Vasily has run back to St. Petersburg with his tail between his legs because he did not inherit the fortune. Um, then she presents the book that she also wanted Mary to read about Russian mysticism, and we learn about the Freemasons. So you are, are you interested in the Illuminati? You want to learn about that? Because baby, you got a storm coming. This book is about to take a turn in about 500 pages or so where the Masons pop back up again. And our boy Pierre gets into a little shenanigan with a Masonic cult. <laughs> We will just hear that the Freemasons are all the rage in Moscow. It's what everyone is talking about. And then lastly, you know, Miss Julie, she knows how to write a good letter. She puts the fluff piece in the beginning. She spices it up with a little political intrigue. And then she goes, well, you know what? I think I might be uh, setting myself up to be engaged to Pierre. And she tells Mary that they plan to m marry Mary off, so Mary's getting married that she doesn't even know about, to Anatole Karagin, that total skis, remember him? Oh, oh my boy Anatole. And Mary is agog and aghast. She does not want this to happen. She's afraid of marriage. She does not know Anatoly. She does not want to be broken from her regimented control just yet. I think in her heart she does, but she can't imagine a world outside of this uh, Bald Hills. And Mary is one of those quiet shade givers that I warned us about in the previous episode and in this one because she replies back to Julie with the skill of a comedian. She goes, Hey, Miss Julie, honey, I already know. My dad was besties with Count Bezukhov. I know that bitch died and Pierre is, you know, in control of the fortune now. And my dad's afraid he's the next to go. Um, aside from that... I'm not going to read your book about mysticism because that interferes with my religious choices. And um, maybe you should get over yourself because while you're crying that Nikolai's going to war, people are actually dying around us. And as for my marriage to Anatole, no thanks. Bye. And I'm sure after she, you know, lived a little bit of her inner mean girl, she said like 10 rosaries or the equivalent of in the Russian Orthodox religion. Her handler slash teacher slash hussy roaming around the house, Mademoiselle Boirin, steps in and asks Mary to send some letters, write some letters for her. And Mary realizes that she's five minutes late to her clavichord lesson. Oh, what am I going to do? And that's a type of mini piano. Think harpsichord. Um, her father's going to be pissed. But as she leaves the room, she kind of... She feels her oats a bit. She, she likes herself. She notices that she is plain, but she's got some damn good eyes, baby. 
Chapter 23. Andre and his pregger's wife Lisa arrive at Bald Hills. Lisa is expecting the red carpet to be rolled out for them, but as they're going to come to know, Prince Bolkonski does not roll that way. The old butler, Tikhon, admits that the prince is taking a nap at this point, and Andre accepts this as commonplace. He didn't expect his father to even get up and greet him, um, and there's no interrupting his schedule there, but Lisa is concerned. They decide to do the cute thing and surprise Mary as she's practicing her clavichord. They do so, and Mary has a, a full-on meltdown, basically. She's so excited to see Lisa in particular, uh, frankly, because this is the only woman of her age in her family that she's met in a good long time. She's very stir-crazy, but she does go over the edge in greeting these two. She's just happy to see her brother and her sister-in-law. You can pick up that Andre is very much like his father when talking to Mary because he's very to the point, very frank, where the details uh, suggest that he's going to war. Mary says tomorrow. Andre replies yes. And that's all the conversation they have after catching up. We can assume that they do write letters to one another, but he's very cold. And remember earlier in the first episode when I said that Andre did not have the best home life, we can see that his father, although he really loves and respects him, has molded him into a, a tin soldier. Prince Bolkonski wakes up and gets to talking with his son, and Andre is very excited. He's trying to connect with his father, describing how the Russians will beat the French with a multi-pronged attack, to which Andre's dad gives the classic dad response, basically, of meh, not interested. And that's the end of the chapter. I don't know about you, but the only way that I can relate to my dad nowadays is if we're talking about old Looney Tunes cartoons, which both got us invested into comedy, or if my dad is placing a coin order, and if you know me, that's a deep part of my life, is ordering coins for dad in order for daddy's affection to come my way. You can't buy love with money, but the U.S. Mint sure does have a sucker in me. Chapter 24, aka Dinner with the Bolkonskis, and as a reader, we're going to come to realize that this is not a dinner in any way like the Rostovs' dinner, where the Rostovs were happy, laughing, debating at the dinner table. This is a solemn Spartan ceremony where no one's talking, everyone's just eagerly sipping their borscht or whatever's on the table presented in front of them. It is not a place for emotions, it's a place for eating, and that's it. At the dinner table, along with the family, there is one Michael Ivanovich, who is an architect, and this tells us a little bit about Prince Bolkonski himself, because he has allowed this architect, who makes way less than him, he's very low on the totem pole in society, to sit at the dinner table just because he has done work on the house that they live in, which is respectable. This is the To Kill a Mockingbird equivalent of Atticus inviting someone to t sit at the dinner table to make sure that the family knows that everyone needs to be treated equal in this society, so a bit forward thinking for this kooky old man, and that's about as progressive as he gets. And Mikhail is sitting there completely stone silent. He doesn't want to tread on anyone's toes, so he's not enjoying the opportunity to sit at this dinner table. Andre notices a new portrait of some old Bolkonsky um, ancestor, and he starts to laugh at his father, like, why do you glamorize the old days so much, old man? And Mary nearly has a heart attack. She is shocked that her brother can speak to her father in such a way when she can barely work up the courage to say no to him. Prince Bolkonsky enters the room, sits down, and tries to make small talk with Lisa, but poor little pregnant Lisa can only talk about the city and gossip and things that Prince Bolkonsky doesn't want to hear about, so he gives her the cold shoulder immediately. What a warm welcome for your new daughter-in-law, Prince Bolkonsky. Really A-plus conversation right there. He strikes up a new one with Andre, who seems to be the only one that he has any semblance to talk to at this table about Napoleon and how Napoleon is going to win the war as of late 
point because he's been fighting about the Ger- fighting with the Germans who are complete and utter idiots. So he is it is the awkward Thanksgiving political meal every meal in the Bokonski household. Not fun. Not fun at all. Andre has been through this enough that he knows not to argue with his father because it's like arguing with a brick wall. He's not going to get anywhere with it. Our final chapter of the episode, chapter 25, Andre is preparing to go off to war. He's packing his suitcase, his things, and Mary comes in to give a final conversation with him. Mary suggests that she can tell there's a lot of problems in his relationship with Lisa because A, he doesn't talk to her, and B, he treats her like garbage in this scene, and begs him to please treat her better, especially in this short time before he's going off to war because this may be the last time he sees her or their unborn child. Andre shrugs this off and suggests that Lisa must be gossiping to Mary, and the conversation devolves into Mademoiselle Brorin, which Andre doesn't like. Mary defends because it's her only boon companion in this estate, and she does reveal that Prince Bolkonski actually uh, basically adopted uh, Mademoiselle Brorin when she was a child, an orphan, just to get her off the streets and to get Mary a a companion to enjoy her time with and a teacher. So Mary, being really religious, she asks her brother Andre one small favor before he goes. And this is very important, not only for the religious symbolism of the novel, but she asks him to wear an icon around his neck, just like his grandfather did when he went to war. And this icon is a tiny saint, um, something to guide and protect him during the battle. And it's a, it's, a, it's a cute gesture from sister to brother. Mary uses her pet slash nickname for Andre, which is Androsia, which is Charmant to say the least. Andre being dead inside, half jokingly, half seriously takes it and says he will wear it and Mary is somewhat pleased at that. He then wraps the conversation back around to his relationship with Lisa saying, no, we don't exactly love each other, but no one's gonna cheat on each other and we're not gonna get a divorce. So we're gonna be stuck together for the rest of our lives. And this is 19th century Russia and there's nothing we can say or do about it. Yeah, kind of sucks to suck. Andre prepares to say goodbye to his beloved Lisa, walks down the hallway, sees Mademoiselle Brorin come out, say, how you're doing, Andre? He basically replies with, get away from me, slut. Don't taint me with your evil. Um, Then he overhears Lisa talking to Mary, and it's a joke that she's made 10,000 times before, and Andre is clearly not that into it. His eyes are rolling, and he's not happy in his relationship, if you weren't aware After giving Lisa her customary pat on the head and peck on the cheek, he proceeds to go talk to his father, Prince Bolkonski. Prince Bolkonski has pieced together that he is unhappy in his marriage and makes the the modernized joke of wives, right? Take my wife, please. Uh, And Andre is kind of into this and they have a little moment together for once. In the final conversation they share, Prince Bolkonski turns to Andre and says, don't be a coward. Do not flee in the course of the battle. Um, Don't disappoint me as my heir. And he is holding back tears. He is struggling to say goodbye and make this conversation feel natural after years of rigorous uh, distancing between these two. And it's the best that old Bolkonski can do in this scenario. He does promise that he's going to take care of Lisa, Mary, and the unborn child, whatever may happen during this. And they say goodbye to one another. Andre then goes to his wife, Lisa, gives her another kiss. She faints and our chapter ends. And with it ends part one 
of Volume 1 of War and Peace. And we made it to the end of this episode. Congratulations. Great reading. Great job. Very proud of y'all. Did you think that Anna Mikolovna would pull off such a thing? I know I didn't the first time I read. Um, Next week, we're going to actually get into the war section of the novel. Now, before going in, the war sections are a bit... if. If the peace sections are the dessert after the meal, the war sections are the political talk being dealt with during the meal that you have to ignore and taste the food and then run up to your room and scream into your pillow because you can't understand why some people talk that way at the dinner table. We should just be eating and be a family together. But I've said too much, I've said too much. The war sections are not my fave, but I'm gonna try to bring my, my charm and my humor and my gumption into these chapters as we read. So I hope you will join us. There is still much more intrigue afoot, and I can guarantee you that we are going to see some eye patches, we're gonna see some religious transcendentalism, we're going to have some people on the brink of death even though the war has just started and we're gonna get a lot of uh, barracks minutia that is very heavy finally if you like this podcast and like listening to my voice you can remember to subscribe or check out my other podcast i have anime was not a mistake where me and my friend dan ryan go through some anime and movie anime adjacent movies um that's really fun and interesting and then i have my other podcast nightcaps at the theater with co-host Matthew Cabrera and sometimes Mark Zebro Jr. where we look at bad movies and get a little drizzy drunk while doing it. And you can check them out wherever fine podcasts are sold or listened to. For our reading schedule next week, I just want to remind you we're still in volume one. We are going to be reading part two, chapters one through ten. So see you then. Proche, dear readers. And remember, drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.